Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. At the end of his 1965 song, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, Bob Dylan expresses the apprehension many of us feel to tell the world what we really think. He sings, And if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. We walk around in the world perceiving and judging, seizing safe moments, spaces, and ears in which to let out opinions we ought not or cannot share more widely. In the church, the virtuous Christian is on guard, lest an errant thought veer into gossip or calumny, or simply be misheard, misperceived, or taken out of context in a way that creates a stumbling block to another's growth in the faith. Additionally, whether in the church, the military, or a corporation, hierarchical structures sometimes discourage speaking up, or at least speaking plainly, for fear of jeopardizing one's livelihood and future prospects. But as those who frequent the sacrament of reconciliation know, there can be no Godward change without first bringing the truth to light. And at times, the faithful must take risks to say what must be said, to speak from the depth of experience about matters that everyone is thinking about, but few know what to do about. Francis X. Meyer has worked for decades both in journalism, as the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register, and in diocesan ministry, as a senior aide and special assistant to Archbishop Charles Chaput in both Denver and Philadelphia. And he recently set out to ask questions and get straight answers from a large group of clergy and lay people with candid, informed opinions about the church. Posing questions about the challenges and opportunities facing the culture, clerical celibacy, church hierarchy, church finances, the sex abuse scandals, and so many other timely topics, Meyer gathered answers in a page-turning new book appropriately named True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church, now available from Ignatius Press. Under the assurance of anonymity, bishops comment with candor that is as refreshing as it is unusual about all manner of topics. Most everyone else, priests, deacons, theologians, leaders of apostolates, big donors, and others, all go on the record with equally provocative comments, but all rooted in charity and genuine desire for the flourishing of Christ's church. As it happens, when one has the courage to speak the truth in love, the blade of Bob Dylan's feared guillotine rarely falls. Towards the end of True Confessions, Fran Meyer treats readers to a bit of backstory about his early life in the film business, and then he adds his own analysis and insights about the challenges and opportunities facing Christian communities today, inviting each reader to a personal conversion that is the starting point to any discussion of a renewed Catholic Church. Fran Meyer is now a senior fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and it is my pleasure to speak to him today, right here on the Ignatius Press Podcast. Fran Meyer, welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. How are you? I'm doing very well, Andrew. Thank you. 
Well, I am very glad to be talking to you today because I very much enjoyed your new book, which we'll be discussing today. And the book is called True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. Now, Fran, this is an unusual book in a good way, I would say, because what you've done is you've collected a, a, a series of interviews with different kinds of people with stakes in the church, bishops, priests, all different kinds of lay people. And you've also added your own um, kind of commentary here and there, both at the beginning and the end and, and at the beginning of each chapter from your uh, your ex extensive experience um, as a, a leader in the church. So I guess my first question for you is, uh, how and when did it occur to you to, to go out into the field, as it were, and collect all of these precious words uh, that you could share with the rest of the church? Yeah, it's a good question, you know, because it wasn't my intention originally. My intention was to write at the toward the end of a career, you know, kind of like the grand analysis of the church in the United States. But it occurred to me that um, most of the commentary that uh, I've read uh, in the Catholic uh uh, chattering class, including my own, by the way, most of my own opinions are kind of boring because they just get toxic and, and uh, conflict oriented. So I thought, well, you know, instead of talking about what people might think, why don't I go out and actually ask people what they do think? And, and so that's the reason it took the direction it did. Um, uh, as you, as you know, I interviewed about a hundred and little over a hundred people, including 30 bishops and clergy of all sorts, and then um, mainly lay people, because that was the primary focus is what lay Catholics in the United States think. And it just turned into a, a, a very interesting and frank series of conversations with people who are truly faithful, truly trying to live their faith, but um, also critical in, in loving ways of uh, problems in the church. Uh, I was particularly interested uh, in the interviews with bishops, because, you know, I worked with them for Oh my, well over two decades, and even before that, when I was an editor, and I had a very positive view of them. But when you get them to actually speak frankly instead of necessarily prudently, uh, they really reveal who they are. And uh, I was able to do that because I gave them uh, anonymity, which allowed them to relax and actually say what they thought. And uh, they're just terrific guys. I mean, they all have different skill sets, different personalities, uh, different life experiences, but overall, they're just really dedicated men. And I, I, I hope people who read the book will, will get that impression that they're being led by good men who are doing their best. Yeah, well, it seems at least the men that you interviewed uh, come across as good men. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting and I think important decision that you made, Fran, to provide anonymity to the bishops, whereas the other the other people you interviewed are, are were happy, I guess, to yes. um, make themselves known. But, you know, I suppose a lot of us out in the out in the church just sometimes maybe get frustrated because bishops are such high profile and political figures, you know, that they can't really say what they think. Um, they have to be prudent. They have to be prudent. And I don't think people understand that, Andrew, adequately, because what they say will be parsed and picked apart by a lot of people who are hostile or don't understand the faith. And so they've got to be careful. And what that can lead to is a perception of a lack of courage. And in some cases, that it's true. Some bishops do lack courage, but most are, again, they're trying to do their best in very difficult circumstances. Yeah. And that really comes through in the in the comments that the bishops make. Maybe we could go into some of the categories that you wanted uh, to discuss with them. Yeah. Um, what let's start here. What what were kind of the large scale challenges that the bishops articulated to you when you talked to them? Well, you know, in the immediate, uh, I interviewed most of these guys in, in the immediate aftermath of COVID. So the very first question was, what did COVID do to your faith, to the faith of your people? And did they come back or not? And of course, it had a, it accelerated trends that are already happening in American culture, people uh, going tepid or falling away. Um, I, another interesting element of the conversation uh, that that led to was uh, the question of whether the supernatural uh, really has um, really has staying power with people? I mean, do people in church actually believe in things like heaven and hell, um, in in uh, consequences for one's actions in this life? And you know, the bishops were all over the lot in their judgment of that. I mean, people, Americans, 
we're living in the most materialist society in human history. And uh, a lot of us experience our faith uh, as a very positive ethical system. But uh, most of us don't really believe that, A, we're going to die, or if we do die, uh, that uh, we couldn't possibly end up in any place but heaven, because after all, God is all loving. So uh, we had some good conversations about that, some very practical questions about uh, utility of celibacy, um, uh, questions about the impact of the abuse scandal. Uh, you know, a lot of lay people are very uh, uneasy about financial management in the church because, you know, they work hard to, to make their money. And when they donate it, they want it used properly. So there's a whole chapter on uh, the situation in Philadelphia, which was uh, really a catastrophe when Archbishop Shapu got to Philadelphia. And it was a catastrophe not because people were corrupt. It was a catastrophe because good people tried to do too many good things without adequate planning and safety mechanisms to ensure that things were done properly. Um, you know, uh, a lot of questions about the life of priests uh, and uh, the nature of what the lay vocation actually means, uh, because everybody talks about it, but you know, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be a lay leader? Uh, so the various vocations in the church that commented on that from bishops to lay people had slightly differing views. Um, what you find, I hope I'm not kind of rambling here, but I mean, one of the things that struck me was the difference between the way bishops think about their relationship with priests and the way priests think about their relationship with bishops. There's a real gulf there that really tracks back to the abuse scandal and a, a sense of uh, anxiety on the part of priests. So we were all over the lot. You know, I had a list of about 25 questions that I went into every single interview with. And typically by question five, that all got thrown out the window and they talked about what they wanted to. Uh, so uh, it was it was quite a ride, you know. Yeah. Sticking with bishops for a minute, because your comments there were so helpful because it's clear how you're. The, the first part of the book where you're talking to bishops really opens up into all the other conversations that you have with priests and deacons and, and others. But sticking with bishops for a minute, um, you mentioned that you you talk to them about celibacy. You talk to them about church administration. Um, you also talk to them about politics and culture. And you know, that's an area where we faithful out in the pews um, where there's there's always a lot of confusion about, you know, what, what does the bishop think about this or what does the bishop think about that? What can a bishop say? What can a bishop do, right? For example, about whether uh, a politician can, you know, can be barred from communion or something like that. What what did you hear from the bishops that you talked to about kind of the, the cultural and political issues and the church's understanding of, of, you know, what all that's about? Well, I think most of them would are, are very well aware that we tried too hard to assimilate into this country, and in the process, we got digested by it. You know, so that the when we talk about the Catholic vote, it's virtually non-existent now. Um, you know, politics is always going to have a moral dimension because it's about the, the acquisition and the use of power. So we have to be in, politically engaged as a people. The bishops, of course, are constrained from except in extreme circumstances, from directing people to, uh, to a particular candidate. Uh, privately, I thought there was a, uh, a dislike for different reasons uh, directed at both Trump and Biden. I mean, Trump, is, uh, Trump did a lot of good things, uh, but he's, he's uh, perceived as a narcissist and, and um, much too self-focused, whereas Biden uh, is you know, Biden is nominally Catholic, but uh, effectively um, off the reservation in terms of his views. I mean, there's very little real Catholic conviction in the what in what he's doing. So the bishops were um, deeply skeptical of the political system at this point and um, not particularly hopeful about the, the future. We just have to do what we can with the with the resources that we've got. And that's pretty much their attitude. Culturally, uh, as I indicated a few minutes ago, I think uh, they're very conscious that we're dealing with and living in uh, a country that has kind of a veneer of um, respect for religion and a veneer of uh, democratic institutions, but is actually the most materialist uh, culture in history. And uh, our institutions 
uh, in some ways are vestigial because uh, the country's so big and administration is so difficult that the democratically elected elector, uh, uh, democratically elected elements of the const of, of constitutional government are being kind of delegated away to these administrative agencies. And that's always a source of some anxiety. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, if you don't know history, Andrew, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. And one of the problems, one of the problems that Catholics have in America is a forgetfulness because we're a novus ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages. And we don't like the past, you know, because the past is kind of a mortgage on us being able to recreate ourselves. But that's toxic for Catholics because history is our, is our rootedness as a believing people. So uh, if you were to ask me, Fran, what are the things that would lead to a real renewal of the church? I mean, one of them is obviously confession on a regular basis. Another is adoration, because we need to recover a sense of interior life, and adoration forces you to do that. Um, and then um, just, just trying to, to live your life as a saint. It sounds so difficult and so simple at the same time, you know, but I mean, doing the right thing on a daily basis as a Catholic is increasingly difficult in this culture. And, and um, that's the only way things are going to turn around because we behaved ourselves into this, this series of problems that we've got. And there's no quick fix for them. We have to be, behave ourselves out of them and become yeah. saints, you know? Yeah. And I think that, that, that longing for it, maybe that sadness about the lack of a, a virtuous society comes through in, in the bishop's words. Um, last thing on bishops, because there's so many other interesting groups of people I want to talk about, but I can't resist asking you about this because of course being, <clears throat> excuse me, for the bishops to be anonymous uh, allowed them to express certain misgivings perhaps about Pope Francis. Um, and uh, I just want to read one quick quote. One of them said, Francis fosters ambiguity, which feeds division. His distaste for the United States and its bishops is obvious and unwarranted. His manner is authoritarian. Yes. And, and a number of the bishops expressed, you know, even, even anonymously, you could tell some of them were trying to be careful, but it was, yeah. it was pretty illuminating to see um, some real opinions expressed there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, look, the, the overall, and I mean about all of the bishops that I talk to, w would uh, necessarily be ranked as faithful guys. I mean, these are guys who are committed to Rome, committed to the Pope. Uh, but, you know, in a marriage, in a marriage, spouses are frank with one, an with one another, and the bishops have an obligation to tell the truth. And, and um, so, the general feeling of the bishops toward uh, Pope Francis is one of some confusion and some frustration. Uh, there's also people in that in the interviews uh, with bishops who were who were clearly supportive of Francis, really making an effort to you know clearly support the man to the degree that they could. But you know there were you mentioned one bishop. There was another bishop who <laughs> there was another bishop who described him as ruthless three times in a row. You know, I eliminated two of them in 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 the in the in editing the text, but I mean a, a real sense of uh, a perception that the Pope is is the most authoritarian Pope in the last century, which I think arguably is true in, mm -hmm. in his manner. You know, I saw that at the 2015 Synod. Uh, so uh, the bishops, the bishops are, are are faithful sons of the Church and uh, faithful to the Pope. Uh, but not without a certain degree of puzzlement and criticism. And that comes through in the interviews, I think. Yeah. And likewise, if we move on to the next category of priests, you alluded to this before, but the priests have a uh, a distrust, maybe a, 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 an ambiguity anyway, toward the hierarchy uh, yeah. themselves and not just the Pope, but their own bishops and, yeah. and you know, other priests, maybe even. Um, what was that like, you know, talking to the priests about their relationship with the with their bishops and the wider church? Well, when you uh, there's a there's a dysfunction between um, the, the the priests that I talked to directly, uh, who were very careful in in uh, their criticism of their bishop. But then the survey that I mentioned by my colleague, Steve White, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which demonstrates very clearly the priests have a real hard time trusting their bishops because of the abuse scandal. 
so uh, the, the priests that I interviewed uh, tended to be, with, with the exception of Father Phil Larray, who was pretty direct in his comments when he was teaching at the Pontifical Lateran University, I interviewed him. He's now at Boston College. But um, I mean, he was very respectful, but also very frank in, in that priests have a hard time tr trusting their bishops because of the abuse scandal. Um, I think some of that, Andrew, is just hardwired into the nature of the relationship because a bishop is, you know, a father and a brother to his priest, but he's also practically the boss. And the boss is always uh, a potential problem looming on the horizon. So, I mean, there's always that tension. It's just gotten worse since the abuse crisis because yeah. they feel like they've been too often cut loose or they may get cut lo loose at any minute if somebody makes an allegation. Yeah. But that having been said, I mean, despite various challenges, the priests that you interviewed seemed very, for the most part, I thought very, uh, very convicted about their vocation. I mean, very happy to be priests and happy, oh, yeah. to, happy to be celibate. They they all spoke very eloquently about the, the celibate vocation. Um, and that was encouraging to me. I hope that comes through to, to everyone who reads the book. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, I, I know both of, or I know all of the priests that I interviewed previously. Um, the, um, I knew Father Larray when he was working as a, as a, a uh, in pastoral work here in the United States. And he, now he's back, as I indicated. But uh, Eric Banneker is a young, a fantastic young priest in the inner city. And, and uh, just if you, want, if you want encouragement about the future of the church, he's a, he's a poster boy for it because, I mean, there are a lot of guys like him out there. Uh, he's got a difficult parish, poor parish, and he's just loaded with energy. And, and so um, source of a great deal of, uh, and he's very, very sharp. I, I think that comes through in the interview as well. He's really a very intelligent guy. And then there's Father uh, uh, Brownholtz, who's kind of a mid-career pastor in a suburban parish. Uh, one of seven kids, comes from a devout family. You know, the, uh, the parish he was in was literally dying on the vine. He showed up and three years later, it was, it was completely alive again, you know, it, which is an indicator of how powerful the witness of a pastor can be. So, um, yeah, they were, they were both, neither of them, um, expressed, a, uh, any, any criticism of their Bishop, by the way. So, mm -hmm. uh, I got, I got, I got more frankness on that, uh, in that territory from the permanent deacons I talked with, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, Deacon Chris Roberts and, and uh, Deacon Mike Sabanko are, are really good examples of guys who are thoroughly committed, but also very direct in what their comments are, you know. Yeah, I was impressed with Christopher Roberts' comments, and I have I have noted here that he described, uh, he, he used the term lethargic mediocrity, <laughs> which I thought was a really, that was quite a phrase. Well, you know, Chris is a is the son of a very a very prominent Baptist pastor, and uh, he was on a uh, an academic track. He wrote a book on uh, Christian sexuality that's very good. Uh, when he was, I think it's kind of uh, his his PhD doctoral thesis, you know, turned into a book, uh, and then he just got um, he got a he got repeated invitations to consider the permanent diaconate and finally jumped into it, you know? Yeah. So. Well, one, one more thing about him. I mean, he, you know, he, he makes it clear. He wishes there was more theological discussion happening. Yeah. And there are some, you know, there are, there is a case to be made perhaps that even though bishops are overwhelmed with the administrative apparatus that they are thrust into, um, that there may be there may be something to be said for them to really embrace their first love, which surely they they didn't become priests and bishops in order to because they wanted to run an institution. I mean, it was because yeah. they loved Jesus, they loved the Lord, they loved God's people, and probably they were pretty fascinated with the Bible and the theological tradition, and mm -hmm. you know that ought to maybe come through more. Yeah, well, you know, I think Catholics have an instinctive understanding of this if they if they have been around a while. You know, I mean, guys enter the priesthood. <laughs> Um, like like men and women enter marriage, they have an idea in their head, and then the reality isn't exactly what they expected. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you may love your wife, but um, that comes with mortgage and kids and education and massive costs and everything. And like guys who uh, enter the priesthood tend to do it because they feel 
uh, the mission of preaching the word of God. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in their career, they're ending up running a small corporation, you know, mm -hmm. which is what a parish is. Uh, so it's, it can be uh, it can be daunting. Yeah, well, let's carry that forward then, Fran, with uh, the next set of interviews you did with with colleagues and friends and others who who are involved in uh, diocesan diocesan leadership. Your chapter is called "The Machinery and Its Fixing," and um, maybe we could start with the financial aspect. You 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 brought that up before, but you know. Um, you mentioned your, the, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and I know that this will apply to so many other places in the church where there are just, you know, big, big problems, big, you know, big, big messes, lots of questions. What do we do? And, you know, you, the, the interviews that you conducted, uh, I think shed a lot of light on, on some of the problems, but also some of the ways forward. Maybe you could talk about that. Oh yeah. Well, uh, a little bit of background is useful. You know, uh, when uh, I, when Archbishop Shapu moved from Denver to Philadelphia, he brought two people with him. I'm one of them, and Kerry Kober, who is his who is his longtime uh, personal secretary, terrific, terrific consecrated virgin, wonderful woman. So the two of us moved with him, and uh, he knew going in that uh, the church in Philadelphia had serious problems in terms of uh, uh, clergy abuse which then led to significant legal issues, political issues, broken, you know, priestly morale. It was, it was a very difficult environment. What he didn't know is that we were also $300 million in debt and had been running budget deficits of, you know, uh, over $10 million for, for years. So it was just, it was a financial catastrophe. And again, uh, with the exception of a CFO who happened to make off with a million dollars, that was an extra added bonus. Um, uh, most of the problems were created by good people trying to maintain, maintain institutions and offices that were dead and had been dead for a long time. You know, the church in, in the East, uh, all along the Eastern seaboard is going through this contraction process and how you handle that to right-size the church uh, in the new circumstances is difficult and, uh, frankly, um, distressing. So people don't want to do it. But if you don't do it, then there's no future. So the first first three or four years that the archbishop was here in Philadelphia were really very, very, very difficult because of closing things that uh, people had an emotional attachment to that was out of proportion to reality. Uh, but it had to be done. And when it was done, everybody breathed a lot easier and the church is much healthier than it was 10 years ago now because of it in the diocese. Uh, so, you know, realism in the way that we administer the church uh, is absolutely essential to keep the confidence of the faithful because sooner or later, they're gonna figure out that something's wrong and you didn't fix it. And that chapter, uh, one of the great gifts of, one of the great gifts of the archbishop was that he he knew how to recruit really good people and then allow them to do their job and hold them accountable for it at the same time. So the two CFOs that I interview, uh, Dave Holden and Tim O'Shaughnessy, both came from um, very distinguished corporations and corporate backgrounds that uh, they didn't need to do this work. They did it because they loved the church. And uh, the two of them uh, just turned it around with the help of... Uh, an extremely gifted attorney, Scott Browning, uh, who has represented the Archbishop for now decades, uh, and who isn't Catholic, by the way, but is very devoted to the church. Uh, so it was just, I staffed the process and it was just fascinating for me to see these guys work and the Archbishop work uh, in a way that really served the interests of the church. Yeah, so the, the lawyer that you mentioned a moment ago, who's not Catholic, uh, I really appreciated his perspective on where we are in regard to, you know, the kind of the aftermath of the clergy abuse scandals and kind of what what the church is facing. In terms, you know, there was a, a, you know, there was a kind of a initial period, and now we're into a different period. And um, not to say that, you know, it's all still alive, and I think we're probably going to be generations until we're really realizing the impact of all of that. But just from his perspective, as a lawyer, as somebody who's working with the diocese, he had some interesting things to say. What, what did he What did he share with well, you? A couple of things. The, the the number one, and again, remember this: uh, Scott's not Catholic. I mean, he is a Methodist. He's a 
you know, Christian, but he's not a Catholic. Uh, his attitude was that, first of all, it's not just a Catholic problem. That's as obvious as can be. Uh, we got a lot of attention because we're a real big organization. Uh, but the problem is uh, pandemic in this culture and in many ways worse in some public school districts and public institutions. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, once you realize that, you, you're, you're not just going to simply demonize the church uh, as a as a lay person. The other thing is, is that it's big business. I mean, what what's happened is, is that uh, plaintiff's attorneys really understood that this was a gold mine and they made a they they. They emptied the coffers of a lot of dioceses in an excessive way. And a lot of the money, he also makes this point, you know, 40 or 50 cents of every dollar in those uh, in those settlements that the church made with plaintiff's attorneys went to the attorneys and not to the victims. So uh, Scott's attitude was that a system has to be developed that um, kind of cuts out a lot of the plaintiff's attorneys and pays to heal the actual victims, if that can be done. And uh, that's why these uh, reparations, reparation funds that a number of dioceses, including the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, have been successful and actually worked because the money doesn't go to attorneys, the money goes to victims. And that's the purpose of the of making up for the evil that was done for these people, not enriching you know, plaintiff's attorneys. Um, what else did he say that was useful? I mean, I think he, I think he's very disturbed by the tr the drift in American culture uh, against religious liberty and the increasing frustrations that uh, are imposed on Catholics and other religious organizations. Because as religious belief declines, the value of religious freedom is going to decline, and he's very worried about that. Um, but overall, I think the thing that emerges from that interview with Scott is here's an outsider who's seen it all. I mean, all the dirty laundry, all the sensitive issues, and he just loves the church. He's mm -hmm. absolutely committed to the church and believes in her goodness. And uh, that, that was always a source of tremendous hope for me working with him. And, and Scott's a very good friend uh, that uh, it just reassured me or confirmed me in my own confidence in the church, which has really never changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that came through in his in his remarks for sure, and it did also in the the next set of interviews you did with various lay people, uh, academics, um, yep. you know, people who are kind of invested in the teaching aspect of of the church, men and women. And there were two. I, I wanted to highlight one woman and one man. Um, there was one woman who is described you describe as a wife, mother, and university professor, mm -hmm. and she talks about a, a scene where she's meeting with a, a young man who's in his early twenties. <laughs> Um, you know exactly the the one. I'm, it, why oh, don't you yeah, take over? Well. You know very exactly well. the one I'm talking about. So sure. tell, tell us about that one. Well, <clears throat> this is a woman who's a very gifted theologian, university professor, and um, teaching at a uh, a mainline university in a big city. And uh, instead of teaching theology, or in addition to teaching theology. Um, she has found herself needing to arrange dates for her students because she's dealing with people who are in their late teens and their early 20s who've never been on a date. They don't know how to do it. And, and, uh, and she said her, her office hours are jammed with people not asking questions about you know, the Trinity, but um, basically wanting to talk about their love lives, which are a wreck because they don't know how to conduct it. Mm -hmm. So one of, her, uh, one of her exercises is getting people to go out on a date, a real date, and uh, then coming back and writing a report on it. So they can't, so they can't escape the obligation of actually having to talk with one another. You know, it's just a, it's a strange world out there. I didn't have this problem. Yeah, it, it, it does seem to have hit us all of a sudden, but it, it's, it's refreshing that there are uh, there are people in the church who who have this almost sort of we might call like a practical humanist vocation, you know, to kind of help these young people become human beings, which is after all what what Christ and the church is all about, in a sense. Well, her, um, you know, Andrew, her one of her real concerns, and I, I it's just mentioned at the very end of um, of her comments, I think, <clears throat> is that uh, one of the trends in, in uh, higher education is more women entering higher education and fewer men. 
And her, her main concern is what that's going to do to family ecology, you know, because the marriageable pool of men is shrinking for these women in uh, highly educated positions. And the, the, the role relationship in a marriage then becomes out of joint from a Christian perspective, you know? I mean, women exercise their authority in one way, men in another, and men are supposedly the, are not supposedly, men are the head of a family. But what that actually means is a headship of service. Uh, if men are allowed to be drones and underachievers, it all just begins falling apart. Mm-hmm. Which goes yeah. to another issue uh, that is explored somewhere in the book, which is the crisis of fatherhood, crisis mm-hmm. of masculinity. You know, that's uh, the, we talk an awfully lot about uh, the about feminism, uh, but the really the deeper crisis is is, and one of the bishops mentions this, by the way. Uh, the deeper crisis is a is a kind of crisis of masculinity, and the emergence of men who don't know how to be men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was the that was the other example I wanted to to put to you. But you you basically already said it. You you talked to a a man whom you describe as a husband, father, and lay ministry leader who talks about the urgent need for a healthy masculinity, yeah. and that's and that seems to me the key: the healthy masculinity. Because we see this longing in our culture for that men are kind of awakening and wanting to be manly and masculine, but maybe it's not being channeled in exactly the right way into the kind of servant leadership that you that you talked about before. Oh, there's a, there's a real there's a, a real and and disturbing trend <clears throat> toward um, I don't know what it's called at the moment. It, I, I mean, I've heard the expression Bronze Age masculinity, you know, Nietzschean kind of stuff, um, which really posits masculinity as a kind of a hostile alternative force to feminism, and that just doesn't lead anywhere. First of all, it's stupid, you know. I mean, it, it it's it's emotionally unsatisfying. And uh, it, it, it just isn't what men are made for. Men are meant to protect and, and uh, provide uh, for families and for other people. And when you're all about yourself and getting what you want, it, it just is a dead end and it creates a lot of havoc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe that leads to the next category. You you uh, you interviewed a number of families who have children with special needs, and and there were um, you know very various members of the church who are you know a, a category of a category of Christian that is um, that has a, a special identity, I suppose you know it, physically with regard to abilities and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the couples you talked to was J.D. Flynn, whom our listeners yeah. probably will know as the the editor of the the Pillar, and also his wife Kate. Um, what, what did they tell you? And what did the other families tell you about kind of uh, the state of the church with regard to people with disabilities or, you know, um, yeah, it's special people, I think, that is the name of that yes, chapter. Right. Yeah. Well, J.D. and uh, uh, J.D. and Kate are, are good friends. So it was it was an interesting conversation because they, they felt relaxed and very comfortable talking. But I mean, listeners need to understand that J.D. and Kate um went out and wanted <clears throat> wanted to adopt children with uh, special needs, you know? I mean, our, we have a son with special needs, but he's our natural son, you know? Uh, so it's very easy to love him. Uh, the, the J.D. and Kate actually went out and actively chose to do that, and, and uh, not just once, but twice. So uh, they're really a kind of heroism there. And the interesting thing about these people, Andrew, is that not just the Flynn's, but also the Hennessy's and the McGurns, is that they don't see themselves as heroes. This is just routine Christian love. You know, and, and that particular chapter uh, is the one that uh, always moves me the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, you don't, uh, I think people usually underestimate the kind of uh, personal character that people need to, to do that sort of thing. I mean, the, the interview, uh, J.D. and Kate are terrific because they're very frank. They all are, you know. Uh, the other one that uh, I, I, can't, I can't read it without um, becoming affected by it uh, is the one with uh, <clears throat> Ursula and Matt Hennessy. 
you know, uh, they have a really difficult circumstance with uh, their daughter, Magdalena, uh, who has Down syndrome, but a lot of other problems as well that uh, uh, can lead to kind of impulsive anger and stuff like that. And it's really, really difficult. Uh, but they um, they have an amazing, wholesome Christian attitude toward the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Then you've got, you know, Julian Bill McGurn, who uh, adopted... Um, three infants from China when he, when Bill was assigned to uh, Hong Kong. You know, Bill's got a great line about that he had to reconcile himself to being a an ethnic and um, gender minority in his own family, you know. <laughs> He's got three girls who are Chinese with the last name of McGurn, you know. <laughs> so so uh, it's just, a, they're just interesting people. I mean, Christians are interesting people when they live their faith, you know. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, you said it before, you know, just that the example of the, the really heroic uh, Christian living that you see come through there, which, you know, interestingly, you have another whole chapter about kind of successful ministries like apostolates and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I almost put those two chapters next to each other. Like, you know, there's this sort of bigger scale uh, sign of encouragement in the church. There are these, you know, organizations that seem to be doing a lot of things well. But then there's also just this example of individuals and families who are just choosing to live as Catholics, just choosing to be the real deal. And, and both of them are just really encouraging. Um, so I don't know if you want to say anything about those organizations. Yeah, and I, when, uh, you know, my wife and I have always been involved, well, my wife particularly, I, I, I kind of ride her coattails on this. She's a, she taught for 40 years in Catholic schools, but she's also very active in the pro-life movement. So when... Uh, when we knew that there might be a problem with Dan, uh, our son with Down syndrome, you know, in utero, it, it didn't affect us. When he was born, it didn't really affect us. It was just something that we were mentally prepared for. I mean, you have to, it's always a, it's always a bit of a challenge to uh, actually live the convictions that you claim to believe, you know, because, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, but it, it wasn't really that difficult. And he's a wonderful kid. Uh, but, that was a gift to us. Um, we didn't go out and search for it. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, you know, when you run into that kind of uh, witness, it's uh, just very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your own, your own witness. And uh, it really comes through uh, with the people that you talk to as well. Well, they're likable people. You know, mm -hmm. the thing about the, about the interviews that I did was that they're each one of them is a really interesting person. Yeah. I mean, and so you can't very well be depressed when you're dealing with all these really cool people who are committed mm -hmm. and come from completely different perspectives but they're all committed to the one thing, which is trying to live uh, a faith that's very life-giving and organizes the purpose of their life, you know, mm -hmm. uh, gives them meaning. And, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a pretty impressive. I mean, I mean I, if people read the book, and I hope they will read it, you know, and, and I hope they won't be deterred by the fact that, you know, uh, much of it is interviews. Uh, some people don't like that. Uh, and I, I, I knew that going in, but I thought these people would be interesting enough that they would maintain the, 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 the that they would be worth the time of people investing in them. You know, uh, the, the, I think what you come away from is an inability to be depressed all the time. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, if you look at the hard data about numbers and survey data about the church, you can very easily get lost in it and uh, worry that, oh my goodness, it's all falling apart. Well, it isn't all falling apart. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, uh, there are just too many good people and that's how, that's how things are, are renewed. You know, Andrew, one of the things that uh, ha has marked my life was an interview. I, 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 I called up a, a Jewish rabbi friend uh, uh, a few years ago and asked him just very simply, you know, I mean, how, how is it that the Jewish people have survived all these centuries of persecution and dispersion and all sorts of challenges? And he said, he used me, gave me one word, Zakhor. 
Zakor is Hebrew for remembering or, to, or memory, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Jews are, are very committed to remembering who they are. And that gives them a resilience even under tremendous pressure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's our job too. You know, uh, you can't be too depressed about the church if you know it can be a whole lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> can get a whole lot worse. And we always come back because of people like the ones that I interviewed. I mean, these are people who just love the church and will not be deterred. And, yeah. uh, and so uh, I came away from the whole process of A, exhausted, but B, um, very hopeful. You know, yeah. I thought that, okay, there's, there's, things aren't as bad as they might otherwise seem. They're, they're actually, seeds of renewal even as we're speaking about problems in the church yeah and in fact that's almost exactly what one of your uh one of the people that you interviewed tim bush of the napa institute he he said we're already in a renewal process yeah which i thought that was uh you know and and several of the others in that chapter we talked to people who <laughs> invest their their money in ministries and and that sort of thing they they all seem to have that kind of positive oh, yeah. outlook really yeah well tim, tim is compulsively positive but but uh but for good reason you know he's seen he's 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 helped a lot of people do really really good things and and accomplishing good things himself obviously but but uh yeah the the investors i call them the investors the people who have resources and and support really uh really important catholic ministries uh are interesting in their own right. You know, I, what I was interested in, in talking to them was a, what motivates you to give away the money you work so hard to earn. Uh, and they're very articulate about that, but they're also very articulate about what their expectations are. And I think people who start ministries or want to do something for the Lord frequently think, I think I, I use the example of the children's crusade from, uh, I guess the 13th century, you know, wonderful inspiration, terrific idea, no planning, mm -hmm. completely falls apart, you know, and uh, apostolic leaders need to be responsible in terms of uh, exercising good financial planning and control over the resources that other people give them. It goes back to the same thing we were talking about earlier in terms of the church, you know, um, there's plenty of money out there, but um, you have to prove yourself before you get it and then prove yourself to keep it in mm -hmm. terms of the support of people who are, are, are committed to helping with their financial resources. Yeah. Fran, one of the reasons I think people are, are going to like your book, I hope so anyway, is it, for me, it really hit home in your, in your last chapter where you, you offer some of your own reflections and we learned some you that you had worked in film i'm a huge film person so that was really that was yeah. really interesting and uh, even the title of your book true confessions is taken from the 1981 film yeah. noir uh movie where robert de niro plays a priest and um but but something i loved that you articulate so well in that in that last chapter is just how is really the power of story that story is in a sense it is reality um you know i mean all these stories that these people are telling you are are reality and they're conveying the truth of the gospel um, in, in a variety of different ways. And you say this, I'm just going to read this to you and then maybe ask your, for your reflection. You said, uh, film done well has unique dramatic power. It's visual, absorbing, and immediate in its nature. Whatever truths it tells about the human condition linger a lot, a lot of time in the memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the visual is very powerful. You know, I mean, their print and, and the visual image are, are, two very different ways of communicating and they, they, um, they each have particular strength. If you read something, I mean, if you read true confessions, the book, you have one image, you know, cause it's based on a book originally. And, um, and it, it's, it's a powerful, it's a powerful novel, Mr. A murder mystery novel, but the movie, um, has that kind of power, but then the additional power of fabulous actors delivering, the message. I mean, Robert De Niro and Robert Duvall are two of the greatest actors of their generation. And this is that film has some of their very best work in their careers, you know. Um, and uh, the reason that I, I mean, it, True Confessions is one of my all time Catholic favorite movies. And uh, I've had people say, What are you talking about? It's really a rough edged kind of, in some ways, almost anti Catholic picture. But it's not. 
finally, it's not about um, the institutional church or <clears throat> solving a murder mystery. Finally, it's about forgiveness between two brothers. Yeah. And that's extremely powerful. So that, <clears throat> that story, I think, goes to the, goes to the heart of um, the Christian message. And again and again, uh, in all of these interviews, there was that uh, there was that kind of uh, <clears throat> willingness to love under very different uh, under very difficult circumstances and serious challenges to um, to their to their ability to love. I mean, you know, why would you put up with? I mean, it, from one perspective, I'm not saying this is my my perspective, but why would you put up with Rome? and some of its comments about the American church, when you're doing your best to live the gospel and being told that you're, you know, you're not. I mean, that, I, I mean, I can see people being pretty angry about that. And, and I was impressed that that anger was controlled so frequently by people who had every right to be annoyed. Uh, and they just kept doing what they're doing, you know. One of the good things about Rome is that it's largely irrelevant, no matter who the Pope is in the in the in the daily life of, of Catholics. I mean, mm -hmm. their their pastor is the most important thing. Their bishop is the next important thing. And Rome is very far away, uh, which is probably a good thing most of the time. You know, yeah. the function of the Pope is to be a source of unity. And, and you don't need that uh, living in your house with you all the time. You know, so. Uh, right. Right. Uh, I just, uh, I just find uh, at the end of it all, uh, I find myself being, um, you know, wondering if anybody will really be moved by it. But uh, I certainly was, and and it, uh, and I'm a skeptical guy. I mean, I'm a, you know, permanently glass half empty guy unless otherwise proven. You know, uh, so for me to be affected by these people, it it uh, it proved to me that the message is true. You know, yeah, and that will come through when our when our readers pick up the book. The book is True Confessions: Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. Available now from Ignatius Press wherever you get your books. The author is Francis X. Meyer. Fran, thank you so much for taking the time oh, to join us today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks very much. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media, and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.